And this morning I had the pleasure of watching a fight go on for a seat at a meeting. <laughs> this is a revelation. <laughs> when you have to come at quarter to ten to get a seat for a meeting at 10.30. I'm taking that back to Toronto because they'll all love to hear about that one. I thank Ivan for taking me and then we had lunch and I have been very well looked after so it's now my turn to return something to you. Plato many, many years ago said that the gr a grateful mind is a great mind. And for people to come here to this Thanksgiving banquet, as you will be celebrating your Thanksgiving uh, feast next week, I think indicates something about who you are. Your um, philosopher, Oliver Wendell Holmes, said this. He said, gratitude is like a pie, having a pile of earth which has iron filings in it. He said, if you root around in there with your fingers, you will never find the iron filings. But he said, if you take a magnet and put it over that piece of earth, all the iron filings will be attracted to the magnet. And he said, that is the way gratitude is in our lives. And I think gratitude is so very powerful because it really is understanding that there is a power bigger than we are that provides all things for us and we express our gratitude in whatever way we see fit. I bring you a gift tonight in my gratitude for all the times that I have been in the United States and been treated so royally for the fact that the Americans are our friends in Canada and that we feel for you over the events of September 11th, which probably have some repercussions in our country too. I was to a concert of our Mendelssohn Choir on November the 6th and I had a very moving experience, and I was talking to somebody in L.A. the next day, and I told him about this. And he said, Mildred, when you are speaking in America, he said, please tell other Americans what happened that night. When we got into the concert hall, there was an insert in our program. And when the concert indeed began, they played O Canada, we sang our own national anthem, and then we sang God Save the Queen. And this was the insert in the program. It said, Dear Patrons, It is unprecedented for the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir to ask its audience to sing another country's national anthem. But we think you would agree that these are not normal times. Rather, these are moments to reflect on the meaning of what freedom and security means to Canadians and to those who would be there to help to defend our country and who are out there who would help us defend those values in case they were threatened. And so, in recognition of the pain and sympathy we all feel because of that very tragic day of September the 11th, we ask you now to stand and with conviction and thanks sing the American National Anthem. And we sang, and some of us cried, and we sang with conviction and gratitude for all of you. Thank you.
Some months ago, a friend of mine was to speak at a conference, but the conference was canceled. It was canceled because it was a nudist conference, and they discovered that it wasn't going to be very successful because everybody was comparing and nobody was identifying. <laughs> so I think it's really important that we get some identification going here. I've developed my own version of the 20 questions. You've all had a good dinner. You need a little exercise, perhaps. So I'm going to ask you if you can identify with me to raise your hands. Are you willing to do that? Great. I've divided these 20 questions into three parts. The easiest ones first. How many here were born on a farm? How many here were born on a farm in Saskatchewan? Okay. How many here are German? Some identification here. How many here were raised Roman Catholic? <laughs> A lot of identification. How many here are the youngest of ten children? We have a few people who identify. Now that's the easiest part. Now it gets tough. How many here were Roman Catholic sisters for 15 years? <laughs> And still are, I take it. <laughs> How many here were ever locked up? How many here were locked up in a mental institution, psychiatric ward, or insane asylum? How many here were locked up 32 times? <laughs> three, three, I think I see four. How many of here ever had shock treatments? How many here had 38 shock treatments? <laughs> I stand alone. Isn't that lovely? How many here were ever diagnosed as schizophrenic, schizophrenic paranoid, paranoid schizoid, manic depressive manic, manic depressive depressed, having a chronic personality disorder or a... Uh, Organic personality disorder. One, two, three. I can't believe it. Six. Six. Okay, so we have some identification. How many here married their psychiatrist? You are sick if you clap for that. We're tied to the bed. <laughs> Keep your hands up. How many here were tied to the bed? How many here were tied to the bed, but not for fun and frolic? <laughs> there was not the same number of hands, please note. Well, you know a little bit about me because you saw my hand up through that whole proceeding. 
Now we come to um, part three. How many here felt that one drink was never, was too many because 60, no, how does that go? How many here felt that one drink was not enough, was too many because 50 were not enough? Yeah. Yeah. Great. How many here always felt alone and lonely? Lots of identification. How many here always felt fearful? How many here, you might as well keep your hands up. <laughs> How many here always felt they didn't fit? How many here felt they were dropped on the wrong plan? I'm glad you put the hand up, sir. <laughs> By the way, how are you doing over there, Barry, at table 48 with your hair? Um, how many here always felt different? We've got lots of identification. Okay. What does our book say? After it tells us about what's wrong with the body or the fact that the body develops this craving, it says the main problem rests in the mind. If you think about what I just identified as being some of the drama of my life, which most of you could not identify with, we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask myself, what is the disease? Because what I will tell you about my story really only makes sense if you and I understand what the disease is. The book is very clear about this, that drinking alcohol is only the symptom. And when I got clear about that, a lot of other things fell into place. So what is my disease? Well, if you look in chapter 2, the first paragraph to the agnostics, the last sentence there says that if you, are to, um, if you want to stay sober and you find that you cannot, or if you want to moderate your drinking and you find you are unable to, it says you may be suffering from a disease which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Well, if that's going to be the solution, then I guess the disease must be the lack of that thing. In step 12, again, it tells us what the solution is going to be. We are going to have a spiritual experience if we do these steps. That will be the result. And I think that always ties in very well with what step 3 says about the disease and what my real problem is. It never was drinking alcohol. It looked that way, but it never was. Step three says self-centeredness is the root of the problem. And it says it's going to kill me if I don't get rid of it. And it tells me further, I can't do it myself. It says wishing or trying will not do it. And so as I look at all that, I see very clearly that it really is here in Alcoholics Anonymous that the, that the solution to my disease has been offered to me. And the solution was quite different from what I struggled to get all my life. What is a spiritual experience, really? I think the first place we see it is as it affects the difficulties with the body, namely the drinking of the alcohol. And I realized one day, I don't have to drink alcohol anymore. But I think then it goes much deeper to the point where I learned to get along in life. You see... I was taught when I came in that alcoholism is fatal and it's progressive. And I think if I understand this correctly, what has always been wrong with me, I fought life. 
and you can say, I fought God, I fought the way things were, I didn't want life to be the way it was, and that was always my problem. And so learning to accept the present moment, learning to live in the experience of the now, these have been the things, the acceptance of grace, these have been the things that has made it possible for me to be sober these 28 and a half years. You always start your meetings, it seems, with by... What is it? The grace of God, uh, good sponsorship, the steps, the traditions. I have been sober since May the 18th, 1973, and for this I am truly grateful. So how did I get to that place of despair? Because by the time I came here, I was in a state of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. The book says some of us have to be badly mangled before we can accept help. And I certainly was one of those. It seems to me that I came onto the planet not feeling good. <laughs> it seems I had had an implant. And that implant said, you're a nothing, you're a nobody, you're a girl, you'll never amount to anything, nobody cares about you. And it, it seems that there was a filter over my perceptions. And the filter over my perceptions said, it's all about me, 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 me. And then I became aware that the person I loved most in the world cried at night, and she would crawl into my bed with me, was my retarded sister, Dora. In those days, they said she was retarded. Now we'd say all, we'd have different words for it, but she was injured at birth, and she knew she was different, and she came to the person that she knew had empathy and sympathy for her, and she cried. I tell you this not to gain your sympathy for me. I do not require it. It has been a very powerful learning experience for me because... Out of that, I tried to change the world for her because it hurt me so. I was three and a half and she was about 16, and I felt it was my job to change the world. Well, I gave my brothers and sisters their marching orders, and they did not respond to my controls. <laughs> I gave God his marching orders, and he did not respond to my controls. I was raised a Catholic. I was told that God was love and God was power, and I thought certainly this was an occasion when he ought to listen to me. I knew what was best. And I have to tell you that in those days, I became depressed. I became angry. I was always filled with fear, and I felt that nobody listened to me. Nobody cared about me, and that's how I went into the world then to live my life. Bill Wilson, in one of his letters, says that he, too, took big hits. I think we all take big hits in childhood, not because our parents are bad. It's just the way it is. We come here to do some work, and that was how it unfolded in my life. Bill Wilson, in his letters, says that he determined from the hits he took that he had better be number one. I determined from the hits I took that life was scary, and I better play it safe. And so I put up the walls, but the awful part of what went on in me was, I believed that I was right. I saw my sister cry at night. That was the only thing that was important. And if you didn't see that, you were wrong. Now, I, I must say, my family 
don't see them as ogres. As I look at them now, I realize they loved our sister every bit as much as I did, but my perception was so skewed because they didn't do it my way. I believe they were all wrong. They were all cold-hearted. Everybody was cold-hearted, and it was going to be up to me to fix the world, and I better be damn careful doing it as I went my way. At five, I picked up a drink. I was a late bloomer, as you can see. <laughs> I didn't pick up a drink because I thought it would solve anything, but I tell you it did. I knew there was a God when I picked up that drink. It was a higher power, and it came out of a bottle of my father's homebrew. I went into a place where everything was beautiful. The stuff that came out of that bottle had the power to change my perception of everything. Everybody around me became loving. I became loving. Everything was wonderful. I'm not stupid. Why would I not want to repeat that experience? I was not afraid of alcohol. If you had said to me at that time, this stuff will pick you up, and one day it will slam you against the wall and leave you within, within an inch of your, your life, I would have said that's impossible. And so I continued to drink as I went my way. I arrived at a point where I would drink anything. I drank at any time that I could. It was my total preoccupation with life. It's all that I really cared about because it was only when I drank alcohol that I felt good. I got to the point where I drank vanilla and I drank perfume. My personal favorite was Chanel Number no. 5, actually. <laughs> I can tell you that stuff goes down hard. If I'm in the right mood these days and I'm in a, rest, in a department store and they're spraying this on, you know, they always want to give you a little sample. As I'm casually strolling away, I'll say, sure smells better than it used to taste in the old days. <laughs> Once in a while I look back as they're picking themselves off the floor. <laughs> At 18, I decided to go to a convent. I was confused. And the night I entered there, I was drunk. I was drunk these days in everything that I did. And it probably says as much about them as it does about me. Sister, you're accepted. No hard feelings. They accepted me. And for the next 15 years, I lived there um, drinking as much as I could, trying to be a good sister. I always made sure people are always fascinated. How do you stay drunk in a convent? Easy. You lie, you cheat, you steal, just like everybody else does. <laughs> I would say that, you know, I was about 75% a good nun. There was about 25% of me had to take care of my alcoholism. And so, whatever it was that I had to do, I always made sure that I had all the jobs in the church. I was the organist in two churches. I had three choirs. I trained the junior and senior servers, and on and on and on it goes, because I was near the mass wine, and I always used to worry that the priests would know what was going on, and then I discovered later on that the pastor there was an alcoholic too, and he too had been into the mass wine. <laughs> 
I tell you, that parish buzzed while the two of us were there. <laughs> January the 10th, 1966, I had my dispensation. I left the convent, and I remember standing on the convent steps. I was a well-educated young woman. I had spent my 15 years studying psychology and theology and all kinds of philosophy. I did not know the most basic thing that I know today and that I learned here, and that is that the problem is inside me. It never was outside. And that changing my clothing, getting my secular name back, I was no longer Sister Mary Eugenia, I was dispensed from the vows and all that kind of thing, and that I thought I was fine. I would be... I would just go out there, and some nice man would find me, and we would ride off into the sunset, right? Wrong. In ten months after I left that convent, I had been in many of the sewers of the world. It doesn't take long, believe me. My drinking had always been conditioned and controlled by the places that I had lived, and now there were no controls on me. And I was lonely, and I was depressed, and I did not know how to live. And so I found the lower companions, and I became the lower companion, and I will leave it at that. You can fill in the blanks yourself if you feel so inclined. Uh, I signed myself into what was then known as Ontario's Insane Asylum. And it was there that my brother found me and was absolutely horrified that this young woman who had 10 months ago been Sister Mary Eugenia was now an inmate in an insane asylum. He took me uh, back to Saskatchewan, which is where I was born, and I went to the university hospital. Now, the importance of that is this. There were two doctors there, two psychiatrists that I was to get to know very well. One was Dr. Abraham Hoffer, who had been consulting with Bill Wilson. And the other was Dr. Fred Frank, also a, a psychiatrist. And the two of them began to see that probably all these diagnoses I had were incorrect and that I was alcoholic. You see, Dr. Hoffer knew a lot about alcoholism from his association with Bill Wilson, and Dr. Fred Frank knew a lot about alcoholism because he was an alcoholic, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and sober at that time. And so they suggested I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And at first my doctor, you know, said, no, I couldn't go. It would interfere with my treatment. And then he agreed, and he let me go, and I wa walked into Alcoholics Anonymous the first time, November the 15th, 1966. I'll just dwell a little bit on that, because sometimes I hear people say, you just don't drink and go to meetings, honey, and everything will be fine. If that's what I had done, I would be dead today, you know, because I have learned something else. That five and a half years I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not drink, and I went to meetings, I was in Prince Albert, and if you know some of the folks in Prince Albert, you know there are people there like Cease, who in a month and a half will be celebrating his 50th anniversary in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was my first sponsor, so I certainly can't fault the sponsorship. I can't fault the members of AA. But what happened was I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, and somehow or other, I thought that's all you had to do. I walked in and I thought, wow, I'm home, this is good. See, I have a brother who died two years ago 
who at the time was sober 49 years. I remember him when I was a little girl, and I remember my father writing to me when I had gone to the convent, and he said, I don't understand it, but he said, something incredible has happened to your brother. He has been transformed. That was the word my father used. He has been transformed. He has gone to this new thing called AA. My father said, I don't know what it is, but he said, it's good. So I knew that AA was good. I had this drinking problem. I'm now in AA, and it's wonderful for three weeks. <laughs> Somebody at the meeting this morning was commenting at her surprise when she came into AA and found out that she was in major pain. Well, that's what happened to me. See, I believe that when I began drinking at five, I absolutely stopped growing. I absolutely understand today that I had the emotional skills. I had the, no grown-up skills. I knew how to do intellectual work. I was good at that. I could go to school and outdo the best of them. But when it came to living and relating and connecting and being part of, and I will say loving, you know, you'd think nuns would be loving, wouldn't you? I didn't know anything about that stuff. I've got the walls up. You're all stupid. You're all wrong. I know the way life should go, and it's not going that way, and you can imagine. So there I am in Alcoholics Anonymous. And at some point in my life, I had been introduced to speed. I had been introduced to sleeping pills and all that stuff. And so I helped myself. And for five and a half years, I sat in AA stoned. It doesn't work. Trust me. <laughs> It just interferes a whole lot with how you interpret your sponsor's words. <laughs> it interferes with what you hear when you read the big book. <laughs> Cease uh, often talks about how they let me go out. It was a very active community and still is because there are several jails and a penitentiary in Prince Albert. And everybody who's in AA in Prince Albert does service work in these jails and, pen and the penitentiary. They let me go to the women's jail. Cease now says she carried the disease, not the message. <laughs> and that was the truth. At the end of five and a half years, I walked out of AA. Not because of you. I think back to those years, and all I can see is that I was treated with compassion. People told me to keep coming back. They told me the truth. Chuck Chamberlain used to come out, and he'd say, Miss Mildred, one day he said, you'll get it. You'll find out that you already are everything that you can be. And he'd draw me that diagram, you know, that's in the book, The New Pair of Glasses, that sphere, you know, with everything in it, and then the line and the little stick man standing outside in the cold and the lonely and the dark. He'd say, that's you. All you have to do is come in and be part of the whole. And I didn't understand any of that. And after five and a half years, I walked out of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you don't believe that this is a progressive disease... I am standing here as witness to the fact that it is, because in that last year and a half, up to that point, I had functioned when I drank. There was no more functioning now. It was just dreadful drinking.
My husband by this time had begun to drink too. And I was into the DTs, couldn't stop. I had convulsions, I couldn't stop. I had blackouts, I couldn't stop. It just seemed that there was nothing on the planet, there was no way that I could ever live on this planet and not drink. I reached a point where if I had a bottle of booze in front of me, I might not have five cents in my pocket, but that was just the way it was. I was right in the moment with the bottle of booze, and that seems all I needed. If I could ever live in the present moment now the way I did then, I'd be just fine, I'll tell you. Well, I wound up in a psych ward, which is no big deal, on May the 18th, 1973. And uh, op opened my eyes to see two men sitting at the foot of my bed, and they really were there. <laughs> One was a private detective who had been hired to find me, and I must say that in that last ten days of drinking, I made my famous trip to Cincinnati. I don't remember that I was here, but other people tell me I was here. And uh, haven't been back since. <laughs> so... On the morning of the 20th, the nurse took me to the washroom, and I saw myself. I had a shiner that stuck out of my head, and I was black and blue. I had a half moon of purple around my face. I had teeth knocked out, and I weighed about 80 pounds. And I looked at myself, and you know what I saw as I looked in that mirror? I said to the nurse, I've become a woman of the streets. Remember, I've been a nun for 15 years, and I saw the person looking at me, and I, I said that to her, and she said, yes, you have. What are you going to do about it? And that's the question that stuck. She took me to breakfast and then back to my room, and I thought, what am I going to do about this? I was at that time in a state, our home was gone. Everything was gone. The cars were gone. The pretension of wealth was gone. It was all gone. I had no place to go. My family would have let me come home on their terms, which were, you may not live in our house drinking or drugging and behaving like you have behaved, and I leave you to fill in the blanks of that one. My friends said, don't come near us because we'll call the police if you do. I was a nasty piece of work. And as I sat on the bed, I said to myself, what are my options? You know, it says somewhere, I think, no, it's Ray, Ray O'Kay, who often says, there's a line in the sand over which we are not required to walk. And I never understood that. But the line in the sand for me was, I thought, how am I going to live? All I could think of was, ridiculous as that might sound to you, all I could think of that morning is, I can't work, I'm unemployable, and uh, I'm not going to be a full-time prostitute and live the rest of my life that way. And I made a firm decision that I was going to sign myself out of the hospital and I was going to take my own life and I knew exactly what I was going to do. And it was at that moment that something so incredible happened to me. 
because it was as if a giant hand reached in to me and removed from me the compulsion to drink. I was 40 years old at the time, and I had never drawn a sober breath if it was possible to draw a drunken breath. The compulsion to drink was removed from me, and I knew it was gone. The mystery of that all is, isn't it, as you think about when you got sober, isn't it that we never know the day or the hour? My plan that morning was, and it was the only plan I had to leave the planet because I was truly out of plans. There was nobody I could use any longer. And it was at that moment that God knew what I did not know was that I was ready to accept the gift. See, I don't think it's a question that God doesn't give the gift. I think the gifts are always offered. But it's, we have to say yes. And that's what I think the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is. The fact that we swim in grace, that's a given. We didn't create it. We can't earn it. But we do have to accept it. And if I think about what goes on here through the practice of the steps, the traditions, the legacy of service, and so on, I think it's all about that. We become more willing to accept grace. And you see, what happened that morning was, I remember clearly saying, you will have to send me somebody. I do not know how to live. Because somehow that morning, I knew that, yes, I didn't have to drink. I knew it was gone. I knew the compulsion had been removed from me. But I also knew that I, I remembered 1966. You can't just not drink. Something else has to happen. And I said, I don't know how to live. You'll have to send me somebody. And I swear to you, as I stand here, there was a rap on the door. And a man stood there. And he said, I saw you at breakfast. He said, are you in trouble? <laughs> no, I, I always live here. <laughs> he said, are you an alcoholic? And I said, yes, you want to make something of it. <laughs> Oh, yes. And he said, no, I came to see if I could help you. And that man was instrumental in taking me to a treatment center, a hospital founded by Dr. Bell, who was one of the pioneers in giving good medical care to addicted people. He took me to the hospital, and a series of things began to happen which shouldn't happen, but they did. And, you know, if I say nothing else to you tonight, that's really what I want to say, that I believe there's a power that guides, that the law of life is the law of unconditional love. And whether our lives are showing it right now, I couldn't have said that that morning, but I can see exactly what was happening. I was being directed and guided perfectly. And uh, certain things had to happen. He took me to that Donwood. And the nurse said, yes, you need treatment. But she said, uh, you have no money, so you can't come in. From the time I left her office till I was walking down the steps, seemingly the message had gotten through. And I heard this big booming voice say, stop that woman and get her a bed now. And that was it. So I went through this treatment center. I was bitter against God. They didn't ask me to deal with God. I was bitter against Alcoholics Anonymous, and they didn't ask me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous.
my emotions and, and on, you know, they taught me some things about relaxation, etc. And I left the institution to go to Skid Row. Some people do that before I did it after. We had no money and I remember the day I walked into that place and I thought, you know, this is like something out of a Dickens novel. I know, I've heard and I've read about these places. I didn't know they exist, and it shouldn't be happening to me. I was a nun for 15 years. I come from a respectable German Catholic family. How did this happen? And something I knew. It hadn't been the church. It hadn't been the nuns. It hadn't been my good, respectable German family. It had been the choices I had made, and I knew that I was going to have to live through this. You know... I just see the perfection of this because I was in the right institution to meet the right people. The show was up, and I believe that when we are ready to change, the right people are brought into our lives. You know, I could go on and on about this. One of them who came into my life was a psychiatrist, not my husband, another fellow. And he, um, he said to me, you know, Mildred, you whine a lot. He said, I'm not going to listen to your whining anymore. He said, if you want to change, he said, I'll help you. And if you don't want to do the work, he said, you always talk about killing yourself. Go and do it. Because he said, this isn't going to work if you don't take some direction. And then there was this woman who came into my life. And you know what she told me? She said, you are the ugliest, meanest most self-centered person it has ever been my misfortune to meet. <laughs> I said to her, from my full height, you can't talk to me like that. I'm an ex-nun. <laughs> she said, watch me. And then there was my first sponsor. I chose her because she had on gold earrings, a white suit, and she had blonde hair. Aren't those wonderful qualifications for a sponsor? <laughs> but you know what? She was perfect. You know what she taught me? She said, if your husband doesn't get well, you still can get well. News to me. I thought it was his duty to get well, make money, and then we'd be okay. Seems logical to me, doesn't it to you? She said, you can get well regardless of what he does. She went out and got drunk and I stayed. I was in AA, I was rather, I had been going to the treatment center for aftercare and so on. And after about six weeks, one Sunday morning I was there and I was walking down the corridor. You know, it just chills me. And it al I almost feel like crying when I tell you this. A man came walking down that corridor. He could have missed seeing me, and I could have missed seeing him, and the course of my life could have been so different. He smiled at me, and he said, Would you like to come with me to a meeting? Well, I can tell you nobody had invited me anywhere for a long time. We were poor, we didn't have enough to eat some days, and here was this very nice man saying, would you like to come with me to a meeting? I said yes, 
Though I hated AA and I hated what I thought you represented, which was God, and I went with him. And I think it was there that the fire caught. Because as I kept coming and people kept saying, keep coming back, they didn't care that I didn't have pretty clothes. They didn't care that I still looked erect and all that outside stuff. They just said, keep coming back, and I did. And within three months, I was passionately in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, I was at the right place because there were two men who came to those meetings who said to me, when they heard me talk about my fear, they said, Mildred, you have to do the steps. And I said, I don't know how. I don't know if you realize, for me to say that, what a big miracle that is. I think sometimes people have the idea, excuse me, sister, that nuns and priests, they've got this spiritual stuff just nailed down. I know many nuns, priests, ex-nuns, ex-priests, who say they found their spirituality in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's where I found my God. I had had the Pope's God. I had had my mother's God. I had had somebody else's God. I didn't know what the relationship of me to that higher power was, and it was here that I found it. Those two men took me through the steps. I could hardly read, and they'd set me down. They'd say, if you come every night before the meeting, we'll read with you and we'll tell you what to do. Imagine that. They did that for six months, and they took me through the steps. I don't know how much of that process I remember, but I do remember that they took me through. Isn't it wonderful? Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't give you bunny points for understanding. It gives you bunny points. It gives you results because you take actions that you may not understand, you don't have to understand, that you may not even believe in. But if you take the actions, you get the results. If you take the wrong actions, you get the wrong, you get the results. And if you take the right actions, and that's why I believe in good sponsorship and I believe in strong sponsorship. And I don't think I need a sponsor that I can relate to. You know that? I need a sponsor that I respect, who has walked the way ahead of me, who can teach me, show me how to do the steps, how to practice these principles in all my affairs. And I've been fortunate to have good sponsors. That first sponsor taught me exactly what I needed. And then she, she went out drinking. I was sober a year now. And the voice said, and I believe there is a voice if we learn to listen to it. And that voice said to me, go and get a job. Look in the paper. I was making $2.20 an hour. And I'm a high school teacher by profession. We get very well paid in Canada. And uh, I went to the paper, and to make a long story short, I had they couldn't wait to get their hands on me. So I have the job, but I'm a child. I don't know how to live. You know, when you're out on the streets doing pickup jobs, making $2.20 an hour, if you don't have the best relationship skills in the world, you get away with that. But when you join a staff of 100 people, and you have to stand in front of adolescents, and I was teaching adolescents who were emotionally disturbed. Trust me, the most disturbed one was at the front of the room. <laughs> I needed another sponsor. 
and I, you know, God sent him into my life. It was a man who was as tough as nails, and I knew he was as tough as nails. He gave me a direction, and he said, call me the next day. I, I called him the next day, and he asked me if I had done what he had asked me to do. And I said, well, no. And he said, Mildred, I'm going to tell you this once, and once only. He said, I never ask sponsees to do that which I do not do myself. But if I ask you to do it, I mean what I'm saying. And he said, if you don't do it, do not ever call me again. You're wasting your time and you're wasting mine. That was the boot on my backside that I needed. I thank God for that man. And um, I got busy in AA. And I'm going to speed through this because I really want to talk about the last seven years a little bit. I was very busy in AA. I was sponsoring. I was being sponsored. I was changing. I was going to meetings. I was doing my work at the group and all those kinds of things. I was beginning to do some speaking. I met a man at a conference last week, and he said, Are you that woman who talked here about 26 years ago? He said, I hated you. He said, I thought, what did they ever get that woman to talk for? She doesn't know anything. Then he added, but I was just newly sober, too. <laughs> so that was both of us. I paid off our debts. I paid off my husband's debts, and I paid off because we were separated by this time. And um, seven years had gone by, and I still had my old car, and I still had my old furniture, and so on. And I took to sitting at the back of the room and judging. It works better from the back seats of the room. <laughs> because you can really size up who's doing what and compare it to how much you are doing in your perfectionism. And see, you know, there he's driving a Mercedes and I'm driving my old car and so on. My sponsor yanked me aside and he said, we are doing the steps again. And we went through the steps again. And it's been my experience that every time I go through the steps... Something in me changes. Something in me shifts magically and powerfully. And so it did that time. He got out of me some of the anger that I had carried. And as I went my way, everything changed. God deals came into my life. One day I went to another school and to, again, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. I began buying houses. You know, my, my sponsor's accountant had said to me, you can't buy houses, you have no money, and yet within 10 days, I had my first house, which was to be the first of many, and I became very wealthy. I say that not because of the wealth, I say that because it was one of my lessons. I believe that if you need a lesson, you're going to get it, and I needed a lesson. Part of me had kept on saying, well... You know, if I had lots of money, then I'd be okay. The men, they make the money. They've got the power. They're okay. And you could tell me that. And I think many things you can tell somebody, but till they really experience it themselves, that's when you really know it. I can tell you I remember the day I sat on my custom-designed sofa in my custom-designed house and I had my red convertible on the driveway. I had arrived. 
and I was sitting there crying as bitterly as I had ever cried because the holes in my soul weren't quiet. And so I learned that money was not the answer. You know, Spinoza says we have a God-shaped hole in our soul. And I find that the shape isn't filled by a Mercedes, and it's not filled by a man. Surprise, surprise. And it's not filled by jewels, and it's not filled by stuff of any kind. I was 18 years sober, and my sponsor said again, we're going to do the steps, and again we did. And time marched on to being 20 years sober, and I heard that voice again that is never wrong, and it said to me, break up the relationship. I did not know how to do relationship. And so I broke up the relationship that had I had left it a long time ago. And so we said goodbye. The next year, the voice said, give up your job. So I'm 21 years sober, and I want to talk about that a little bit because I think it illuminates everything that we're doing here. I know I watched when we did the countdown. There's a lot of young sobriety here. But you know, whatever it is, whether you're 28 years sober or whether you're 28 days sober or 28 months sober, the work remains the same. Carrying out the principles of the steps to the best of your ability so that God can grow your soul wherever you're at. That's my, that's all that I can see really happening here. It's not about stuff and it's not about getting, getting whatever I think I want. You know, somebody explained it to me this way and I really believe this. I don't know where I'm at in the spiritual life and it really doesn't matter. I think it's like we plant the seed, the tomato seed, and God grows the tomato. And I think it's we present our souls and God grows us as we go. And so the work continues at 28 years and it continues at 28 days. And I think if we don't understand that, we can get into a lot of hassles in sobriety. I have seen people at 25 years take their own life. They've got the house and they've got the job. They've got the wife and they've got the kids and everything seems to be going. They've had their dreams fulfilled and they go and sit in front of a train. We had that happen just recently. I have heard more stories lately of people who've had the same experience that I have had at 21 and 22 and 23 and 24 years. What do I do now? I stood on the planet at 21 years sober and um, said to myself, what am I doing here? I don't have children. I don't have a husband. I don't have a man in my life. What am I doing here? As if that could be the reason why I'm here. But I felt unbelievably lonely. And I said, I'm out of here. That was my cry for help. And one more time, I had an experience of the presence of God. And I knew that it would be all right. And out of that process has come... The miracle, if you want to call it that, that I always searched for all my life. I used to read that part in the big book where it says, God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. And I, it almost made me throw up because I was anything but happy, joyous, and free. I could come to meetings, and I often wonder when I look at a crowd. You know, we put our smiles on. We put our best foot forward. We do what we have to do, and I often wonder... 
what is really going on inside because I know how often I sat at gatherings, how often I sat at meetings, and I felt something was not right inside me. But the way I see it today, this is an ongoing process. I had lessons to learn. I came out of that 21 years, and I had to learn something, that it's my job to do the next right thing. It's my job to put one foot ahead of the other and keep putting one foot ahead of the other until whatever it is that is supposed to come into my life does come. And it came in the form of a phone call. A Jesuit called me. I had never met him, and he said, Would you like to give retreats at our center? I said, Father, I'd love to, but I said, you have no idea how many times I've been excommunicated. <laughs> he said, I don't care about that. I asked if you'd like to give retreats. And that opened up a whole dimension of living that I could never have, have planned for myself. I found myself one night at a meeting that I didn't want to go to, but something kept egging me there. And the gentleman who spoke, he didn't talk about what I, what I heard, but he did give a message about how God had helped him with his rage. I couldn't wait to get home, because something had clicked in me. I knew that I had spent my life planning and analyzing and trying to fix my own life and I have no capacity to fix my own life. As I look at my life, I have never solved anything. All that I have ever really done is tried to practice these principles to the best of my ability, and through that process, God has resolved everything. I, it's just the way it happens. I couldn't, I couldn't have believed that. I couldn't wait that night to get home and get on my knees and say, God, I've got it. I've got it. I've been trying to fix my life, and that's why I've always been so desperately unhappy, because it's never worked out according to my expectations. And, you know, I didn't realize that up to that moment. I sat at that meeting, and I knew that night how much of expectation I had put on most of the events of my life. I also realized how much of childhood I had carried. That, that idea that, you know, Dora would say, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die in the cradle? And I, and I saw the way all things work out. And I began to read that paragraph in the big book where it says, the day will come. And it comes for all of us, I believe, when you will have to make a choice. Either God is everything or God is nothing. And however I interpret that, you know, I think the big thing is I believe that there's an energy, there's a power in this planet. And when I fight it, I'm the one that's unhappy. And when I flow with it and when I let life be and I try and work with what is, something happens, you see, that I couldn't make come about myself. I said that I think that all I really need to talk about tonight, and I'm just about done, is the fact that I believe that this power, we swim in it, and that that's really what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. That's all we ever do. I don't care if it's giving service, coming to a Thanksgiving banquet, 
whether we're, we're on a 12-step call, putting in a phone call, we're all working with one another to release that great unconditional love so that we can indeed become loving beings. You know, that's what Einstein talked about. That's what Carl Jung talked about when he said Roland Hazard. His problem, he said, was that he had separated himself from wholeness. That's what Chuck Chamberlain was trying to tell me. We're all one. And that that's, if I don't understand that, you see, then I'm going to treat you different than if I understand you're one with me. There are certain things I can't do anymore. Then thinking changes, action changes, words change, everything changes, and life starts to flow in that loving, unconditional way. It has been my experience that that is the case. Two and a half years ago, I got a phone call from a friend, and that's what I want to close with. And um, she said to me, my mother just died, and I'm calling you to thank you for helping me in this instance. Now, I had never been at anybody's deathbed, so I thought, how can I have helped anybody with a deathbed situation. And uh, she said, you know, I knew what to do with my mother. Her mother was in a coma. She'd had Alzheimer's. And she said, I just knew how to be loving to her. And she said, we stroked her and we prayed with her and we sang to her and so on and so on and so on. And she said, I'm so grateful to you. And that was the phone call. Well, how did I know? that I really needed to know that because six months later, my brother-in-law called me. See, my parents, my mother, father had died in 65 and my mother in 70. And uh, my sis, one of my sisters and her husband took Dora in. And Dora lived with them in and had a lovely family life. And my brother-in-law was calling me to tell me that Dora was dying. And... Uh, That is not good news. It just so happened. Isn't it amazing how it just so happens? There were two, three of my sponsees at my house that night. And they stayed with me, and they packed my suitcase, and they got my ticket, and they got me on the plane. And I have to tell you that I was, as I was going out to Saskatoon, the coward in me was very strong. The coward in me said, I hope she's gone when I get there. An amazing thing happened. She was not gone. And when I got to her hospital room, a spirit took over. I knew exactly what to do. Imagine. My friend had told me, and I knew exactly what to do. I went in, and we spent the last 18 hours. I spent the last 18 hours with my sister. And I can tell you, it seems to me that that's how this guidance works, because I sang to her and I helped prepare her for death. I stayed with her all night. My family came around, and uh, in the morning we took the life support off, and she died. And as she died, I heard my sister standing in the room say, Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous because she knew that what I had known how to do and showed them how to do, she knew that 
I must have gotten it here because they knew me in the old days and they know me now. And it's absolutely true that anything that is so good has come to me through here. I realized as the days went by that it was at that moment that I also had been given the grace to complete my amends to my mother and dad. I had had such a troubled relationship with them. I, all, I knew that if there was any gift that they would have wanted, it would be that their daughter would be looked after in her dying moments. And guess who was there to do that? It was I who was given the grace to do that through the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I felt that at that time that I really had finished my amends to my dad and mom and that they could say to me now that they really loved me and I could say to them that I loved them. That's a gift. You can't make it. You can't create it. All you can do is suit up and show up and do the work and you find the, your own miracles. You find the gifts in your own life evolve as you stay here in this program. So I guess I'll, I'll just close by saying that it has really become obvious to me that we swim in this power. About two months ago, I was in an airport, and it seems to me I saw something that kind of describes what I'm saying. There was a man standing by the window out look, overlooking the tarmac. And he had his little boy with him. And I would judge that the little boy was maybe two and a half, three. And the father desperately wanted to show this child something. There was a plane out there, and he wanted to show him that something. He, he was trying to get him to look. And the child seemed not able to focus his eyes well enough to see it. And the father, in all this gentleness, kept saying, No, it's over there. Look. And he was kind of guiding his head so that he'd be looking in the right direction so he could see. And as I watched, it seemed to me that that was the gift for that day that my father was sending me, reminding me that indeed that is the way grace works. We're all part of this wonderful creative divine intelligence. We're made out of it. There is no separation. And that's why we're safe. And that's why we can go from here and not have to fear the terrorists or the dynamics of evil or whatever, that Alcoholics Anonymous is the place from which we can go forth and do what it is we need to do for the healing of the planet and for our own safety. God bless you all.